My name is Scott Gilliland, and welcome to AUMC. Um, not everybody knows this, I'm learning, uh, but uh, my family's about to grow by one in like six weeks. Um, we're having a baby, get this, C-section is scheduled for two days after Easter. That's the most liturgically appropriate preacher's kid I've ever heard of in my life. Um, hope you don't come early, right, Pastor Kathy? Yeah. Start thinking about that Easter sermon. Um, <laughs> So there's a lot of stress that comes with preparing to welcome a baby into the home, but for me, the most clear and present one is uh, buying a minivan. <laughs> I hate car shopping. Like, I hate it with every bone in my body, and why? Dealing with car salespeople, right? Um, now, if you sell cars for a living, if you own a car dealership, the story I'm about to tell is a call to repentance. Repent. <laughs> And believe the gospel there are evil practices afoot that we need to call out all right so truly i'm on cars.com or one of those aggregate sites uh, today's sermon is sponsored by cars.com no and uh and i'm looking for a minivan i find a chrysler pacifica which was not what we had originally wanted but they didn't have any the reason it's so hard to buy a car right now is because the inventory is crazy low because of microchips and hashtag supply chains right um and so everything costs way too much uh, right now. And, and so we find a Pacifica that uh, is not too old and it's in our price budget and it's in Prosper. And I'm like, the, the price is not bad. In fact, it's like a kind of price that I'm like, something's wrong with this car, right? I'm hoping it's some cosmetic damage. Honestly, that'd be a gift for me because my kids are gremlins and they will destroy this thing within two months anyways. I don't need it to look nice. I just need it to move, right? A full family. So um, I say, Reagan, I don't want anyone to pounce on this. We got to get up there like two days. It was like a Monday. And so I had emailed with this person. Can we get your phone number? No. Get behind me, Satan. You can got, not get my phone number. <laughs> That's how they get you, all right? That's how they get you. And so we, uh, we email back and forth, set up a test drive, because we've never test driven the Pacifica before. Set up a test drive. It's the dealership in Prosper, 30 minutes away. Not a huge deal. I said, Reagan, can we get there by 5 p.m., get the kids in the car and load them up and, and get there by 5? Which is a big deal if you've got children six and under, because 5 p.m., if they are not actively having food shoved in their faces, they are hellspawn, right? Um, and so, we're, but we're going to do it because I'm super dad. We're going to go check out this car and hopefully buy it. We get up to this dealership and prosper. Everybody's hangry, including me. I get the car seats out of the car because we're doing the full test drive. I want to see what it's like getting the car seats in the car and everything. And the salesperson comes out to greet me and she says, okay, let me go pull the car around. Great. So I'm getting the car seats out and going to wait for the car to be pulled around. She pulls it around and it's dirty, like it's unwashed. And I'm thinking, all, of my, all I can think to myself is like, good. Because this means I can save 50 bucks in our car wash, right? Um, and so she says, hey, by the way, sorry, it's, it's unwashed. Um, we haven't been able to fully process it yet, you know, car wash and, and other stuff. Oh, remember those two words, other stuff. Um, and so I'm loading the car seats in. And yeah, how'd you hear about us? Oh, I was on the website, da-da-da. Yeah, come around over here. Let's put this car seat in, tighten in the belt. She said, do you have any questions for me? I said, actually, I do. I noticed this car had a pretty good price on the website. I'm just curious why that is, you know. And she immediately starts treating me like I'm a wild bobcat, right? Like her hands go up like this. Well, okay, so see, here's the thing. Like it's the awkward salesperson thing happening now, right? Okay, so I hate this is like industry standard and everybody's doing it, but we have to do it or else, oh my gosh, out with it, out with it, out with it. She says, so here's the deal. Here's what they do. Get this. Dealerships like this one, they will buy a trade-in from someone, right? 
And whatever price they paid Joe Blow for his trade in, they then immediately list it on the website for that price, knowing well, as God is their witness, they have no intent to sell it for that price. And so what they're going to do to it, the other stuff is their whole like processing and, you know, unseen fees and whatnot. And oh, oh, and don't worry, sir, because you'll get like free oil changes and, and tire rotations for what, ma'am, this dealership's 30 minutes from my house. I'm about to have a third child in the home. I'm not driving 30 minutes for an oil change. What is wrong with you? Anyways, <sighs> this was two months ago. I'm still mad, y'all. <laughs> I say, ma'am, please. Just what, what are we talking about? What's the final price going to be? How much more is it going to be? She goes, well, it's really hard for me to say until just a ballpark, please. This is 10 minutes into this conversation, y'all. Just a ballpark. She goes, it's going to be like $10,000 more. <laughs> I took the angriest test drive of my life, friends. <laughs> I was so mad. But I was like, honey, we're driving this dadgum car. So we do the test drive. We get out, I take the car seats out, and I'm like, nobody say a word, we're out of this deal. On principle, I'm not buying this car now, right? Nobody likes getting the bait and switch. It is the most frustrating thing in the world, right? If you've been in that position, especially when you're about to be asked to make a significant investment, a significant commitment, being sold this sort of like, passive oh just oh no come on in come on to the lot let's oh take a look around also it's going to be ten thousand dollars more than we advertised it which i'm like how is that not illegal you know nobody likes being bait and switched especially when we know that it's going to cost us something especially when we know it's going to cost us a lot today we're starting a new worship series uh, for the season of lent and if you don't know the season of lent is a season of preparation in the christian calendar uh, similar to how Advent prepares us for Christmas, Lent prepares us for Easter. And, and this year we're going to be looking at some stories uh, of Jesus that we hope can sort of help us to walk a mile in his sandals, help us to feel uh, the, the dirt and the sand under our feet, help us to hear the roar of the growing crowd, help us to even feel those lost and lonely moments that Jesus shared alone. And today we're going to start with the beginning of his public ministry, where Jesus offers his first call into ministry for the public. And then he goes and personally recruits four men to join his movement. And then his movement begins to grow. And what we're going to look at is the way that Jesus talks about commitment. Because nobody likes a bait and switch. And the kind of call that Jesus offers is going to cost everything, but also everything's at stake. So let's talk about the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. If you're following along in your Bibles, you can find Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. And if this is your first time in the church in a long time, or maybe your first time in the church ever, I'm not going to assume that you know a lick about Matthew's Gospel. So chapter 4 comes really early, as you might expect. Chapter 1 is all about the birth of Jesus, the angels coming and announcing his birth, and then Jesus is born. Chapter 2, the magi come, and then they tell, uh, and then an angel visits the holy family and tells them to flee. So they flee as refugees down to Egypt. And then in chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, who serves as a prophet and a, and a herald of sorts, announcing that the coming Messiah is here. And then in chapter 4, uh, or at the end of chapter 3, John baptizes Jesus, hence his catchy nickname, John the Baptist, and Jesus is revealed to be the Son of God. And then chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness 
for 40 days and is tempted by this personified devil figure. And that 40-day wilderness journey is actually where we get the practice of Lent from. It's why we practice these six weeks of preparation for Easter. And then as Jesus exits the wilderness, we pick up. And what you're about to hear is the first words that Jesus speaks as, an, as a part of his public ministry. So he opens his mouth to the world, and here's what he has to say. And we're going to read and talk and read and talk and read and talk. Verse 17, chapter 4 says this. From that time, Jesus began to announce, Change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. Change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. I'm reading from the Common English Bible translation. If you're reading from the NRSV or the NIV or one of the more common translations of the Bible, you likely see a word there that maybe you have feelings about. Jesus says, repent. Oh, geez. Some of us, the hairs just stood up on the backs of our necks. If you're back at church for the first time in a long time, probably because somebody was talking about repentance in a really unhelpful way. So let's talk about repentance for a second, because that is the first word that Jesus says when he opens his mouth. The Greek word there is metanoeo, metanoeo. I practiced that like five times, pretty proud of myself. Metanoeo is a, a Greek word that means, translates to repent for us, but this concept of repentance is critical to understand. In the Jewish tradition, metanoeo, which literally, literally means to think differently afterwards, metanoeo, it had everything to do with this sort of internal to external shift that we adopt when God reveals something critical to us. Specifically, the ways in which we are living that are unhealthy or unholy for ourselves or for other people. Metanoeo is a word that would have been used by the prophets in the Hebrew Bible as they were calling out the nation of Israel for their lack of care for the poor or the oppressed or the widow or the orphan. Metanoeo, they would say, repent. Receive what God is, is revealing to you. Allow that to change your heart and your life, as the Common English Bible says. Allow something internal, something deep within your spirit and your soul to make a change so that then your hands and your feet and your life will look differently so that then, as Jesus says, here comes the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, the Greek word there for kingdom, basileia. It literally means like empire. It would have been the very technical term used for like the Roman Empire, the Basileia of Rome. In the New Testament, frequently political language was adopted by the early church as a form of rebellion to say, you have your empire and we have a different one. The church, the ecclesia, the same term used for the gathering of political officials and the senate. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news that was offered by Caesar, but is now offered by Christ, right? So this political language starts here when Jesus claims to be ushering in a kingdom, a basileia of heaven. See, a lot of times repentance in Christian tradition is closely tied to hell. In fact, if you've heard the word repent used and it's been harmful in your past, I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion that it's because it was used by someone, weaponized by someone holding a big old sign that had really mean words written on it. Or maybe it was used by someone standing in a position like me 
telling you that if unless you repent, you'll be going to the fiery depths of hell. And you got to make that face when you talk about it. Otherwise, you're just not selling it, right? But here, Jesus says nothing about hell. Repentance has nothing to do with avoiding hell and everything to do with ushering in heaven. See, that's what we get wrong about repentance. People treat repentance like it's something to save us from the fiery lake or the fiery depths or the mean guy with the pointy stick, when in fact, Jesus is calling us to repentance. Why? It has little to do with avoiding hell and everything to do with inviting heaven onto earth. But to do so is going to require deep internal and external personal change, commitment, if you will, to allow those revelations of God when I am less caring than I should be, less loving than I could be, less generous or less holy or less healthy for myself or others, am I willing and allowing myself to be molded and shaped and changed in that moment so that heaven could touch earth in a new way? This is... Jesus' opening call, and he puts it into practice immediately after by inviting four men to join his movement. Here's the story, verse 18. As Jesus walked alongside the Galilean Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, throwing fishing nets into the sea because they were fishermen. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Not a hobby, it's a life, right? But that's important. They were, this was their livelihood. They were participating in the local economy. You could say they were supporting that Basileia of Rome by engaging in this practice, right? They're, this is what they do. This is how they work. Come and follow me, Jesus says, and I'll show you how to fish for people. Right away, it says, they left their nets and followed him. So Jesus calls them out of their livelihood, calls them out of the life that they know and into something different to join a new kind of kingdom. Continuing on, it says he saw another set of brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, repairing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat, jumped into the water, and their father and left their father, and they followed him. Which if I was their dad, I'd be like, boys, who's going to repair this net now? Thanks a lot for nothing. Who's this ragamuffin? Anyways, Jesus calls these guys in a more intimate way, not just away from a livelihood, but even away from their home. Leaving their father behind is no small choice to make, and it says immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You know, sometimes I've, I've struggled with this text because of those words right away and immediately. They throw down the nets. They dive into the water. And maybe it's because I grew up around too many Baptists. I'm just, apologies, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I grew up around a lot of kids my age who could point to a specific date and time uh, when they gave their life to Christ. When they dropped the nets and jumped into the waters. Anybody else? Like July 23rd at 8.25 p.m. Because it was always summer camp, right? <laughs> that's when. This be, that's when I committed to Jesus. That's when I gave my life to Jesus. And as a good Methodist kid, like I didn't have that date and that time. When did I become a faithful follower of Jesus? Was it when I was in kindergarten and my grandparents began taking me to VBS in Georgia during the summers? Was it... In the third grade, when my family brought me to church for the first time, and I learned the power of donuts and the gospel, right? <laughs> was it when I was in seventh grade and went on a mission trip and realized what my hands and feet could do for people in need of help? 
Was it when I was in high school and, and got to know my friends of other faiths and had really interesting, transformative conversations around the cafeteria lunch table? Was that when I came into faith with Jesus? Was it in college when I began to deconstruct and reconstruct my faith to make sure it wasn't just one I inherited, but one that I believed? Tell me, when did I come to faith in Jesus? When did I drop the net and dive in? I think it's important in, in the Methodist church, and I know that so many of us in the room, this is your first experience with the Methodist church, it's really important for us to name that discipleship is not a binary, black or white, yes or no, in or out kind of a thing. To be discipled, to, to follow after Jesus is something that lives and swims within the gray. Because yeah, there are some days when we are dropping the nets and we are diving in and we are following after Jesus lockstep, and then there are some days when we are swimming back to shore or climbing back into the boat. And then there are some days when we are picking back up that net altogether and saying, to heck with you, I'm going back to fishing, right? And all of that is part of the life of a disciple. Remember that guy named Peter it just mentioned, Simon, who became Peter? This is the same Peter who will argue with his friends over who's the best disciple. The same Peter who's going to deny Jesus three times and, and forget about his presence anywhere in his life. The same Peter who will also announce that he is the Son of God and the Messiah to his friends, the same Peter who Jesus will end up building the foundation of the church upon. That Peter was not an in or an out kind of disciple. He was someone who dove in and walked away and draw near, drew nearer and then stepped back. And that, I think, is part of all of our story as disciples, and it's important for us to claim that path of discipleship when we talk about commitment in the church. God is not after perfect commitment or perfect disciples, my friend. Just imperfect people who are willing to throw down our nets and to pick up the lifelong work, the lifelong messy work, not unlike fishing, it gets messy, work of faith. And what is that work that God would place in our hands when we allow ourselves to drop the nets for even a moment? That work, Jesus says, is the work of fishing for people, which goes down as a very odd metaphor, right? He was still working out his metaphorical language there. It's early on in his ministry. You know, he's not the best preacher yet, right? It's a sermon on the Mount's coming, y'all. It's okay. Fishing for people. I, what Jesus is getting at in that metaphor is not that we're trying to bait people into the church, right? We're not casting lines and seeing who nibbles. It's, it's about being in relationship with the people around you. To be a fisherman was to be someone whose identity was fully transactional. You were there to catch fish. That was your importance to the community, right? Jesus is saying, what if I called you to be in connection with people in a deeper, more meaningful way? What if even you were called to be in connection and relationship with those who feel unseen and unheard and unnoticed in the communities around you? What does fishing for people look like? Well, let's keep reading. In verse 23, it continues and says, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. He announced the good news of the kingdom of heaven and healed every disease and sickness amongst the people. News about him spread throughout Syria. People brought to him all of those who had various kinds of diseases, those in pain, those possessed by demons, those with epilepsy, those who were paralyzed, car dealers, and he healed them. It's right there. All these folks in need of healing, he heals them. And then it says, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from the areas beyond the Jordan River. 
Jesus announces this kingdom is coming and begins to heal. That word basileia appears once again. And let's talk about the differences between the basileia that Rome and Caesars in our world would call us into and the basileia, the kingdom of heaven that Christ invites upon this earth. You know, empires typically, traditionally, do three things. Emphasize strength, they serve the wealthy and the powerful, and they are forged through violence. That's how empires are formed. Think about what is happening in Ukraine this very morning. Emphasizing strength and, the, and serving the wealthy and the powerful and forging through violence. Notice the Basileia, the kingdom of heaven that Christ is seeking to build, the movement that Christ is building. It's a movement. It's a movement that in, invites the powerless, and we might even say weak, the imperfect, the, the not strong. It's, it, it's a movement and an empire that serves the underprivileged, the poor, uplifts the poor, heals the sick, invites in the outcast. And it's a movement birthed not through violence, but through what? What does Jesus do, tactile, tangibly do? Healing. Healing is what comes with the kingdom of heaven. That's how its roads are formed. And most importantly of all, perhaps, is that it's not simply transactional. Jesus doesn't go to town to town, city to city, and say, poof, you're healed, poof, you're healed, poof, you're healed, I'm gone. He doesn't see them simply as people who are sick and in need of healing. He sees, he sees them as potential co-laborers in this movement. Every time healing takes place, they are invited in. Why don't you join this movement? Every time healing takes place, why don't you come on in? Come alongside. It's not transactional, like being a fisher for a small community where the second you're gone, they're just going to find a new fisherman, right? It's relational. It's reciprocal. And as a result, it grows, not just in healing, but also in love. You know, I believe that Arapaho United Methodist Church is called in the same way that Jesus is calling here in Matthew chapter 4, called to be a movement built upon the power of healing for people in this world a power of healing that invites relationship. I see this in the ways that we serve outside of these walls by, by furnishing apartments and homes for new refugees fleeing from war-torn regions of the world. I see it in the way that we're about to once again welcome justice for our neighbors into this building and come alongside those who are going through the immigration process and helping the, them navigate that, oh my gosh, that overwhelming legal system. I see it in the way that we make a space for children and young people to be raised in the faith, yes, but also to have a respite from the bullying or the meanness they may experience outside of this space and can come to a place where they are told, you matter, you are loved, you are gifted, we need you. I see it in the faces of so many gathered in this space right now and those who I know are watching online who are in need of healing specifically from the church. And are here, as we say, as the last step as they're walking out of the church. Because Arapaho has received a unique calling to provide healing in that way, especially with those who've been wounded, especially, most especially, our LGBTQ community. This is a space, a healing kind of space and a people that I believe is in the image of Matthew chapter 4. If you would agree with that, say amen. Now, here's the deal. If we want to live into this calling and this movement, we can't simply stand still and pat ourselves on the back. 
It means that we renew our commitment with who we are. These confirmands that we just received earlier, they committed to this local church through prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. They are in middle school, and I have no doubt they plan to live into all of that. These are our leaders. Are we willing to make the same kind of commitment as they to ensure that that kind of healing that is already offered can only grow so that the kingdom of heaven could be at hand? It requires commitment, and it's not a perfect commitment. And it lives in the shades of gray, but it's commitment nonetheless. Jesus does not bury the lead in this. We're each called to consider a radical realteration of life as we know it, to repent in the classical language. An empire is not at stake, my friends, but a wounded world is. A wounded world that could receive healing through our hearts and our hands. This morning, the net is in our hands. Do you feel it? It's heavy. It trips us up and it traps us. And we hear a voice cry out, change your hearts and lives. It's not a bait and switch. Jesus is crystal clear from the beginning. This will cost us a lot. I dare say it might cost us everything. But it calls us into community. It calls us into relationship. It calls us into healing. It calls heaven itself down to earth. Change your hearts and lives. The kingdom of heaven is here. What will be our response? Amen.